The cybersecurity market is big business, and it's only growing. It's expected to be worth up to $175 billion globally by 2020. That's a huge increase from the $75 billion people spent on cybersecurity last year. This cyber business boom stems from, well, all of the rapidly rising digital threats that we've been wrestling with on the podcast and seeing in the news, from the Internet of Things to financial crime. But what about the money behind that business? What cybersecurity business ideas are going to resonate with investors? What comes next in this space? We discuss all that and more with Sunil James, a leading Silicon Valley-based venture capitalist who invests in cybersecurity. Welcome to the Cybersecurity Podcast, where we go beyond the headlines to interview some of the key leaders and thinkers in the field. I'm Peter Singer, strategist and senior fellow at New America. And I'm Sarah Sorcher, deputy editor of Passcode, the Christian Science Monitor's section on security and privacy in the digital age. Before we talk with SJ, Peter and I will chat about some of the more interesting things we've been seeing and learning in DC and on our travels around the country. So Sarah, one of the more interesting things is actually you have a big new article set around the top hacker kids, the top 15 under 15. Tell yep, us about that. 15 under 15. It's a real thing. People didn't think that there were enough kids that were active in, in the cybersecurity space. And uh, yeah, my photographer, uh, Ann Hermes, and I, we traveled across the country um, to meet with a lot of these kids who had different interests in cybersecurity. One of them, actually a few of them were CEOs of their own companies. One of them has a business making secure passwords. Another one is... Uh, trying to, he's fine. He found, so he says, the creator of the black energy malware that took down the power in Ukraine. Other kids are working to protect their school networks. How did you find them? What was your, your investigative process, right? It was definitely a challenge to find these kids. Some of them were more well-known. One of the founders of Roots Asylum, the kids section at DEF CON, her name is Sci-Fi, and she's pretty well-known in this space. She's responsible for the disclosure of bugs in hundreds of products. Um, so she was pretty well-known. Others have spoken at security conferences. There are a few who've spoken at DerbyCon and ThoughtCon and some even RSA um, giving various talks. So those were easier to find. Others were just through through my network of people. You know, some people came in through Twitter recommending kids, even though people were joking that this could not possibly be a real article. But yeah, people knew some kids who were working to do this. And it's actually really interesting because um, there are more pathways for ethical hacking than ever before. I mean, if you think about it, hackers that came of age, I guess, as hackers in the 90s, um, which just had a totally different time. They were teaching themselves how to code. They There weren't even that many computers. You know, we talked to Space Rogue, a well-known hacker who um, was part of the Loft Collective, and he remembers riding around on bicycles in Boston searching for spare parts and dumpsters behind MIT. You know, if you think about kids today, they're literally, you know, born in 2008, or so one of the kids and he's you know bypassing thank toddler you for making lock. all of the listeners to this show feel old well he's, I mean, he's <laughs> it's ridiculous i mean in a, in a great and fascinating way i mean he bypassed toddler lock on his parents android phone when he was two that's before he's walking he's you know getting around parental controls and he ended up hacking his dad's xbox finding a flaw in his in his dad's xbox when he was five years old so there's just a totally different frame of reference for technology for these kids at the same time their future is so much more connected and they you know a lot of these kids at such a young age feel this personal responsibility to try to make the world safer for themselves right now and also in the future as their homes and their schools and their work and everything gets more connected. So everyone should check it out. It's on Passcode's website. Awesome. And so, Peter, what about you? What have you been working on? So I have a uh, big new article that's actually the cover story of The Atlantic uh, looking at what happens when war goes viral. And it's essentially a 
look. Uh, it was from a, over a year worth of research. It's written along with Emerson Brooking, uh, an analyst at Council on Foreign Relations. Basically, we were trying to figure out what is social media doing to conflict? How are actors around the world in conflict and war, be it ISIS, be it the Russian military, be it human rights activists, be it criminals, be it hackers? Mm -hmm. How are they all using social media? But in turn, how is social media affecting the wars and conflicts that are out there? And what's the big takeaway? So the big takeaway uh, is if you're thinking of a historic parallel, we're living through the equivalent of the advent of the telegraph. So a new technology that people thought would connect each other, make everything better, and yet it's also being used as a weapon and a weapon at every level, be it in tactical battlefield operations, all the way up to shaping how an entire populace thinks about war itself and whether they should go to war or not. Uh, the related part of this is that there are arguably no more secrets. Everything, every act of, uh, of violence now, be it again, you know, the Battle of Mosul, as we see right now, there's a YouTube channel, there's Instagrams, fighters on both sides are taking selfies in the midst of combat. Uh, so everything's out there. But as we're also seeing, unfortunately, one of the things that the article predicted that's come true is that we're seeing a targeting of the truth itself. So there's no more secrets, but the truth is being buried underneath a sea of lies. And it goes into a little bit deeper looking, particularly at Russian information operations and how they've been used against a number of elections uh, in Russia, Ukraine, Hungary, Brexit, and now it's hitting the U.S. And our argument is, unfortunately, this is going to continue. This is the new space of war, social Anything media. Anything that anyone can do about it? Uh, the best way to avoid being manipulated is to recognize that someone's trying to manipulate you. So the parallel with cybersecurity is, you know, there's two things here. There's battles for control of digital networks. There's also battles for control of the minds of the people behind those networks. But in both of them, the best answer is to build up resilience to be able to shake off that attack, power through it. And that's again, whether you're talking about trying to keep your networks pristine or trying to keep from someone manipulating you, that's the best to answer. Well, we'll be sure to put these links in the show profile. Thanks so much. Today, we're joined by Sunil James, Vice President at Bessemer Venture Partners. With over $4.5 billion under management, Bessemer is a major investment player in shaping the tech firms that drive our world. SJ invests for Bessemer in information security, developer platforms, and cloud infrastructure. He's also a board observer at various notable cybersecurity firms like Endgame, Eyesight, Bastille, and Teammate. Prior to joining Bessemer, SJ led product management for Google Cloud Platform's networking division, was a senior product manager at Amazon Web Services, where he launched Amazon Virtual Private Cloud. And prior to that, he was the director of product management at Mandiant. SJ, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Peter. So say I have a great cybersecurity idea. What is the best way to get a big-time investor like you a uh, company like Bessemer to buy into my great idea. More, more serious way of putting it is, what is the it that you're looking for? Well, I think what we're looking for are uh, ideas that align with the threat that most of the executive buyers that we speak with are really worried about. I think we've seen a lot of technology companies that um, seem to be um, hammers looking for nails, uh, 
Um, and what we're looking for are things that are a little bit more tuned than that. Uh, that frankly starts with showcasing that you've done your homework, that you've spent time with um, the buyers, not just the buyers, but also the users of these products, the people that have to defend these enterprise networks, government networks, and you have a deep understanding of what they go through day in and day out, not just the products, but their process, their methodology, their their workflows, right? The more you can showcase that, frankly, the better understanding you have in terms of what's really needed. And from that will likely come ideas that really resonate, not only with those buyers potentially, but also with us investors. We spend uh, most of our time doing that exact job, right? As a product manager. Walk us through how you do that. Yeah, sure. So uh, one of the things that we do is we, uh, so at Bessemer, we are a roadmap-driven a venture capital firm, as you probably know. Uh, what that means is we spend our time thinking about the world, thinking about the world the world is going in a number of areas, cybersecurity, healthcare, financial technology, you name it. And so in the world of cybersecurity, we spend a lot of time trying to understand what is the state of threat that exists? Who is at risk? Uh, what are the tools that are being used? How are they being used? What are the motivations to attack or not to attack, for example? And we try to synthesize all that um, through a series of conversations that we have with both the buyers of these products, the users of these products, sometimes with the people that are breaking products themselves, sometimes people that are attacking other organizations as well. There's a number of players that are involved in this ecosystem. And so for us, having as much visibility and perspective from as many of these players as possible helps us really get a good understanding of what's at stake here. And from that, um, we then begin to dive into the details and identify a set of domains, if you will, from a technology standpoint, that maybe rise to the top, that is thematically important uh, based on the conversations we've had over the last few months or years or what have you. And then from there, uh, we dive into those, for, uh, into those themes. We will take a look at a given area uh, of technology. We'll understand what is the existing market landscape. Um, who are the players? How effective are they? What are the buyers saying about these products? And then we'll work backwards from that. And we'll then develop um, a very detailed uh, perspective on what would be the ideal kind of company to invest in, in that particular narrative. So if we had an idea you know, that, um, let's call it uh, firewalls were um, uh, you know, a ripe opportunity or whatever the technology might be. We would dive in, understand the firewall ecosystem. Um, we would evaluate the opportunities that exist. What are they doing well? What are they doing poorly? Uh, we would then kind of work backwards to that and say, okay, based on the threat landscape that exists today, combined with our understanding of the firewall market, we think that companies that do X, Y, and Z might be a great fit for us. As you're going through these conversations and the process of it, Walk us through the stages. What's the, what's the timeline that you're operating under in each of these stages? These are constant conversations. There is no, uh, we don't just start and stop, right? As anything else in life, things are moving, things are changing. So we are having these conversations all the time. Um, we do, uh, there, there are some realities, however, right? We do have um, a fund that we do um, invest from, and there are, um, boundaries around the time of that fund, when the fund is created, when we have to invest, and when we expect to raise the next fund, and, and so on and so forth. And so I think a lot of the best opportunities uh, or the new thinkings that we have um, are ideally executed towards the beginning of a, of a new fund. For example, last year we raised our latest fund. Um, and during that time frame when we were raising, we were also evaluating how would we 
revamp our cybersecurity investing strategy along the lines that we just described. Mm -hmm. As you're having these conversations, what do you see as the biggest misconception that's out there when you're looking at the state of the market and maybe the trends that are shaping it towards the future? Are you talking about from an investment standpoint? or In anything. You said you're talking to everyone. Let yeah. us know. So I think one of the, and I spoke about, I spoke about this at the um, RSA security conference in San Francisco in February of this year. Um, I had an opportunity, as, as you said before, my background is mostly as uh, an operator, as a person who builds, uh, not necessarily as a person who invests. That is a relatively new part of my, my career. But I find that that set of muscles has been extremely useful for uh, preparation for this career. The conversations that I had over the last 18 months with buyers and users of security products um, has led me to a realization that even after 20, 25 years of security products being built and sold and, and used and thrown out, uh, we're still facing the same kinds of challenges that we did years ago. We hear the same kinds of pitches we did years ago. Uh, different adjectives, different verbs, different nouns, but they're all trying to tackle the same problems. And so I think what ends up happening is that we, we don't have a very long memory, uh, at least in terms of the users and protectors of these networks, as well as the people who are building these things. How do you build that? Well, I think like anything else, it's easy for us to simply just move on and leave the dust behind and it is what it is. Um, one of the things that I've had the luxury of doing in the places that I've worked in has been to recognize that we are not that different from previous generations, right? I never used to actually study history. I mean, I was a, I studied computer science and political science and I, I loved American history, but I didn't fully appreciate the value of history uh, until I actually became a venture capitalist. And the reason why was that these conversations that I had with these buyers and then my own experiences, things started to click where I recognized the same terms, the same challenges, the same situations that I remember being in 15 years ago. And I'm thinking to myself, why am I having the same conversation? It's the Mark Twain, history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. But it rhymes, exactly, mm -hmm. right? And I think the more that we acknowledge that to be the case, the more likely we'll be much more introspective, we'll be thoughtful about what was effective, what wasn't effective, and pass that knowledge on further and further. It isn't just the stories and the experiences, but it's the lessons learned. And then to emphasize why those lessons are important and how they would be applicable in this newer time frame itself. I think people in corporate America or working in corporate security or in startup worlds, um, they get older, they move on, their motivations for doing things are different as well. And so I think that we need to leave behind institutional knowledge for the next generation of folks to explain to them the challenges that we had and how we went around trying to address them, what was effective, what wasn't effective. The technology itself, the, the software that gets written, the, the, the packaging of that, that's gonna change constantly. But I don't think that necessarily is where the value is. It's really how are the problems changing and how do we evolve to address those, those kinds of problems. And one of the things that is interesting in your background and you laid it out is you have both experience on the product and engineering side, but then also now on the investing side. But the other thing that stands out is that you've been 
at everything from a large investment venture capital fund. You've been at some of the biggest tech companies out there, you know, a, a Google and Amazon, but you've also been in the cybersecurity world at what was then a smaller uh, startup. Speak to us about the culture similarities and differences that you see moving between these spaces. That's a great question. Uh, in fact, I've been spending a lot of time thinking about that, um, in part because I think it does inform, at least for me personally, how I evaluate the startups that I, I meet. Um, when I was at uh, when I was at smaller companies, so sequencing is important here. I, I was at smaller companies first in my career, and then I went to larger technology companies, and then after that, I found myself into venture capital. So I started off not knowing what good was or not knowing what bad was. I just was doing uh, in a domain that was burgeoning and growing tremendously and getting a lot of tremendously interesting experiences, but also discovering more about what does it take to be an effective um, engineer or product leader or leader in general uh, in small dynamic organizations. I then made the move into larger technology companies who have been around for, you know, in this case, Amazon and Google, you know, for, you know, more than 15, 10, 15 years at this point and have, were born in the internet age, right? They were born in a world where they didn't have any constraints. All they had were tools and ideas. And so they had to build a lasting, sustaining organization and culture that would allow for them to maintain these leadership positions that they've maintained. And so I've learned quite a bit about what those two organizations value in the people that they do hire. And then I compared and contrasted that with what I was... So, so what do they value the same and what's different? Well, I think one of the things that we really... Uh, not that we don't necessarily... We didn't necessarily value that at some of the smaller companies, but it just became more obvious to me. Is we... And it's it's funny because I I have a, I have a daughter as well who's six years old. And school, the school that she's in in, San Francisco, in California, uh, tries to um, uh, imbue this in her as well. It is that you're always going to be in a state where you do not have perfect information. You do not have perfect, complete understanding of any given situation. That will always be the case. And so all you really can do is take and process as much as you can and make decisions with what you can and then rinse and repeat and do it over and over and over again. That's one very important thing that um, we, um, that Google in particular uh, values is that, you know, the world is constantly moving. We make decisions, we evaluate, we think about what the good and the bad, and then we make decisions again about whether or not to make changes or to keep things going the way they were. That's one thing that I think is important. The other thing that uh, the other value that I think Google has uh, that 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 resonated with me was was scale thinking. Um, oftentimes, in the world of early stage companies. You have limited capital. You have to solve a problem. You have to showcase progression, not only to yourselves, but to your investors as well to keep the train moving. And so when you do that, um, you take shortcuts. You, you hack around things and you don't necessarily do things the right way. You don't put the polish um, on uh, on the thing, uh, on whatever you're building um, as maybe you would if you had all the time and resources in the world. Um, you also don't necessarily think long into the future about what your product could be like and how the architecture of whatever you're tackling needs to be evolved to tackle that future state, if you will. At Google, uh, I've learned the immense value of thinking about scale thinking, even in the infancy of an idea, 
right? If we think about solving a problem, the next question that gets asked is, what if that problem was 15 million times larger mm -hmm. than what you're thinking about today? Would the ideas- Or in the cybersecurity space, when the adversary reacts to that solution, we have to already be ready for that. That's right, over, yeah. that's exactly right. So that's another another characteristic that we have. There's other, other things that Google's talked about and published as well in terms of kind of the personal characteristics of what we look for. But those are some of the professional- Is there anything different in terms of the culture on not, so this was a, you gave a sort of big tech versus small tech company. How about in terms of cybersecurity versus the other environments, right? Is there anything more cultural that you're seeing in the difference of a cybersecurity company, whether it's large or small versus the other side? You know, I think that one thing that I, I saw early on was cybersecurity companies are still, uh, they're software companies uh, many times, right? The companies that I'm working with, they're, they're just software companies that are working in the domain of cybersecurity. Yes, you need to understand the state of attacks that happen and how to protect uh, or deflect those kinds of attacks, but you're still building software itself. Um, and so it goes back to the point about scalable software thinking, right? When you think about what does it take to solve a problem, you really do need to understand how to kind of be ahead of the curve, because if you're not, then you are reacting, right? Even in the case of cybersecurity, if you've got a solution to a problem that you think exists today, but all of a sudden that problem, you know, changes direction uh, at some point in the future, and if your product can't scale, then all of a sudden your customer is going to say to you, well, this is not doing the job, you're out. And then they're going to bring somebody else in as well, right? And so I often recognize that, or rather I saw early on that some of the security companies that I was involved with as well as saw and was affiliated with, we didn't think of ourselves as software companies. We thought of ourselves as security companies, which meant that we valued more of the security DNA, the the people who were in and operating a network uh, uh, to to help deliver a scalable product. And that wasn't always the case. We need to have understanding and empathy for what the problem is, but we need to have scalable software engineers, product designers, marketers, who know how to build a viable solution. Um, that's perhaps one thing that I saw in terms of small or cybersecurity and technology companies uh, as well. So when you're looking, you... So when you're looking at this idea of the problem continuing to change, how do you see the overall cybersecurity environment, the marketplace changing over say the next five to 10 years? So what are the trends that you're looking at right now that matter to the investments that you're wrestling with? So there's a few uh, areas that we we have explored and are continuing to explore. We spoke, uh, I spoke about this at again at the RSA conference in San Francisco earlier this year and the slides are available online if you want to take a look at this. But there's a couple of themes that we believe exist. Um, the first theme that we believe is that, um, uh, it's, I'll go through it relatively fast, but um, we believe that code is faster than human beings, right? Software by nature is going to be faster than at, at looking at a set of inputs and then making a decision, especially if it's finite in nature, right? If it's bounded in, in some nature, right? And so this applies in the practical terms around, you know, being able to uh, react to a set of signals that you get as a security operations officer or a firewall administrator or whatever it might be, and then making decisions about what to do next, 
right? Oftentimes, we've found that in the course of conversations we've had, a lot of time is spent just collecting information together, piecing it together, you know, and then being able to present it to somebody who can then cut through it and then make some analytical decisions about what to do next. That collection aspect is something that should be automated, right? Really. And we've seen a number of companies over the last um, 24 months that have approached that space, and we're really interested in that. That's one area that we're really interested in. Another area that we're interested in is, or another theme that we believe in, is that um, uh, there is no, um, there, there are no great ways of determining ROI for security, right? We ask a question, if we were a fly on the wall in your planning process or your budgeting process for cybersecurity 2016. In fact, now is the perfect time. Right now we're in October of 2016. If and, and many organizations are sitting back and they're saying, let's do a retrospective on the year. The good, the bad, and the ugly in terms of cybersecurity. Now, now that we know that, how does that impact the decisions we make and the investments we make for 2017? And oftentimes the people that are involved in those conversations don't have any quantitative way of determining the efficacy of any investment. So how do you know if you spend should spend another dollar or less or, or take away a dollar perhaps? Um, and so there are some toolings, tools and products that we're looking at that um, I think are designed to make it easier for you to start getting more quantitative around that as well. It's an area that we're really interested in as well. Uh, the other thing that, um, the other the last area that I'll leave you with that we're, that we're really interested in is that we believe that um, it, in fact, is getting easier and easier to develop applications. And if it is easier and easier to develop applications, then it introduces a new world of software that's going to get written by not just the software developer that you might think of or I might think of, but my mom or my dad or somebody else who doesn't have a quote-unquote software background and is instead a person that is... Uh, filled with an idea and is given a set of tools that in plain natural language allows them to create an application to solve whatever problem they wanted to solve. There is an assumption by that person creating that application that all the things that he or she is using to create that application are going to deliver scalability and reliability and security as well, but they don't know how to measure that as well. And so we think that if that world is, a, if that trend is going to continue, if we're going to see more people think of themselves as software developers as the world moves on, then we need to inject security further into the development uh, models of how mm -hmm. software gets built as well. So what would be a um, perceived trend that's actually a cul-de-sac? Something that people are excited by, but actually you're going, you know what, that's actually not worth the time. Ah, uh, well... Um, People are excited by, but not worth the time. Well, I, I think that right now, um, I need to think about this. I, so there's a lot of there's a lot of buzz around uh, big data analytics. You've heard the term. I'm sure your listeners have heard this term before. Um, when I came on uh, uh, to Bessemer, um, I sat and I just heard pitches for a while just to hear what the vernacular was was being used. I heard that term, big data analytics, in literally every pitch, right? And I had to then ask myself, what does that really mean? What are you doing? What is good big data analytics? What's medium or mediocre and what's bad? And so I think that one of, and it's not about a specific product. It's more about a, uh, a set of capabilities within a product that I think um, people are, are 
developing an allergic reaction to is when people say we uh, are able to apply big data analytics to whatever software product we're building or security product we're building, and that gives us the advantage over the competition. It allows you to move faster. The problem is that there's no way for that buyer to determine whether or not your big data analytics is better than somebody else's big data analytics. They don't have a point of reference. They don't have a point of what's good, what to expect. And so I think even in our case, from from the standpoint of, of investing, uh, I'm very uh, uh, cautious of companies that lead with these kinds of terms because it, it doesn't really mean much to me at that point. So they're here to don't pitch in big data if you think you're going to get billions of dollars. All right, the global side of things. Uh, what are you seeing on the international market? Are there particular countries where you're excited by the cybersecurity businesses that are taking off there? Are you seeing differences in the demands by customers in different locales that's shaping what you're investing in? Well, I think like uh, I think part of that is driven uh, based on where we see economies growing and flourishing. Uh, I think aside from the United States. Uh, we've seen a lot of tremendous growth in, in Europe. We've seen a, a tremendous amount of growth uh, in India as well. From an investment standpoint, we've um, we've made quite a few number of investments in India as well. Um, in cybersecurity firms? Uh, no, in general. Like What we're talking about is the trend of cybersecurity will follow where businesses are mm-hmm. going to, where businesses are, are being created. And so when we find those trends where the world is saying we need to go build and change our economies, attackers will come follow. They go where the money is. And so we've seen plenty of opportunities where uh, not it's not companies that are being built specifically to serve a geography like Europe or South Asia or wherever it might be, but it's more along the lines of companies recognizing that no longer do they just need to build a go-to-market strategy that just serves the United States and its customers, uh, the United States businesses as well as the governments itself. There is much more of an appetite to build sales and marketing teams uh, and commercial teams that do serve other markets because there are plenty of opportunities to expand and to grow more so there than a lot of other places as well. Does that hold though for certain economies? I mean, you have the challenge in this space. If you're a really great cybersecurity company, there are certain nations where you might not be able to do the same kind of business. China would be an example of a key destination for economy in general, but not the cybersecurity side. You're right. It, it is difficult. I think that uh, it's something that we constantly struggle with with our portfolio companies. I think they worry about, um, you know, the second they cross over into the into into the into the mainland, what happens with their software, what happens with their intellectual property, uh, more so than anything else. Once it gets into the hands of uh, a Chinese company that might or may not have ties to the Chinese government, what could happen with that? And that's a big commercial risk. For them more than anything else. The need still remains. The problems are the same. They don't change. Remember going back to my point about us as people and not being all that different from previous generations. We're also not that different from each other around the world either when it comes down to it. Um, and so it is a big concern. And it is one that oftentimes I think is not a risk that at least myself as an investor is willing to necessarily take, especially for companies that are relatively nascent in their 
life cycle, right? They don't have yet uh, the kind of stability underneath them where they can introduce that kind of volatility, even though that market uh, can be large and ripe. There's always exceptions like anything else in life, but generally we've, we've told many of our portfolio companies that focus on the core markets where you're able to really uh, develop some traction and, and stay there. Are there any black swans that you worry about? What do you mean by a black swan? A low likelihood, but or even unexpected uh, either trend event that could rewrite what's possible in this space or things that had been possible that no longer are possible. Basically, there's sort of the you you wrestle with the likely, but often it's the unlikely that can prove to be more important. I you know, I this is probably something you'll hear from a lot of folks. Um, over the coming years. We've heard a lot of this as well from the likes of uh, Google and others, but um, artificial intelligence is not science fiction anymore. It isn't Terminator. It isn't these kinds of stories. It is large amounts of computational capabilities combined with immensely complex and thoughtful algorithms that pour over reams and reams of data to allow for these systems to make decisions and reason through um, a set of inputs, as we were talking about beforehand. Google, uh, I think two weeks ago, um, announced the Google Assistant product, which is their first foray into the new kind of user experience that they want to have, want you to have with Google. That's your new relationship, where it is a conversational relationship. It's there, it's on, it's there all the time. And it's constantly evaluating the factors that are, uh, or the, the environmental variables that are there right now to help make relevant decisions for you in your life. It's 7 a.m. in the morning, they know you have a child, they know your office is 15 minutes away, they know the weather is going to be like this, the traffic is going to be like that. What kind of decisions need to be made? Proactively, not just reactively. I think that as that technology and as that that way of, of thinking about technology finds its way more and more so into computer science programs around the country and the world, we're going to see a new generation of computer scientists that fundamentally focus on delivering the values of artificial intelligence into additional domains like cybersecurity. Automation, which I described to you before, is a very, very, very early step towards that path. It's taking a set of information and making very limited sets of uh, decisions based on that input as well. But if you had more data to consume and to throw into a bucket, and you had the same kinds of scalable algorithms, maybe you can identify patterns in a more meaningful way. Big data analytics, when people throw out these terms, that's the promise of what big data analytics is. Artificial intelligence done by computer scientists who have built artificial intelligence algorithms and have applied them at places like Google and Amazon and Microsoft and Apple are seeing the fruits of this in the consumer landscape. I think we'll see more of that in the commercial landscape with security. I'm struck by the disruptive effect it might have on areas, uh, for example, like the training, education, even marketplaces that we're building for certain parts of the cybersecurity arena that could just disappear. So if you think of the uh, bug hunting, where you you know it's everything from we've got people training in it to, again, we're building these different structures for it. And yet, as we saw at DEF CON, uh, Mayhem and AI do the bug hunting task 
in you know day or actually rather hours that would take humans months. So are you suddenly are you training up a generation of people who the equivalent are they going to be automated? Is this happening in the cybersecurity realm itself? Um, I'm intrigued by these sort of shifts. I, I think so, right? I, I think that again, I think security um, you can you can you can attack and and you can protect. Right, and I think that we've talked. At least I've framed this from the standpoint of mostly protecting, like uh, you know, so cybersecurity that protects uh, enterprises. But those same sets of computer scientists may be able to build automated, intelligent uh, pieces of code that just knows how to react and attack in a more dynamic fashion. Right. I mean, not to go too off, too far off the beaten track, but you think about something like like Stuxnet. And there's been a lot of reporting about what Stuxnet did, who built it. That doesn't matter. I think what is, well, it doesn't matter for what I'm about to say. What matters, it, relevant to this, ah, what's relevant to this particular conversation is that Stuxnet had a very sophisticated set of capabilities that were designed by people to tackle a mission. What if code can be embedded with artificial intelligence to simply just react and then pick out of a litter of capabilities to do whatever it did in real time without having to have any kind of directed path-driven decision-making. That's tremendously scary. You've uh, just rendered much of the approach of defenses inert. And that, that, that is the ultimate sort of cybersecurity right. uh, black swan event. Right. So we've just moved from reality to kind of into science fiction, which leads to a, our closing question we ask everyone. What is your favorite fictional depiction of this space? And favorite can be either you love it or it can be you love to hate it. I have only just recently gotten into Mr. Robot. I, I, you're supposed to be someone on top of trends and you're only just recently I, getting I'm into this. I, I'm, I'm, I'm questioning the investment portfolio here. <laughs> well, you know, I've, I've got, uh, I'm spending my time studying. I'm not watching TV necessarily, but uh, when I do, uh, I had a few friends, much like they told me to watch Silicon Valley. Uh, they said to watch Mr. Robot. And in both cases, I said, well, I kind of live these lives already. I don't need to watch it on TV. Uh, Mr. Robot, I decided to turn on and I found it to be very thoughtful, very considerate of- What would be an example of, you know, kind of why does it resonate with you? What would be a specific well, example? I, I think aside from um, their ability to do, they've done a great job in terms of capturing details around technology, which I think is always a good sign of somebody having done their homework. It's the, the polish that we talked about before. That's the difference between mediocre versus great product itself. Uh, but it's not just that. I think it's also the motivations, the characteristics of the people that are involved, uh, the kinds of backgrounds they have, their um, their social characteristics that are oftentimes, you know, representative of what we see in the real world, right? People that may be, may be more introverted than others, a little bit more introspective. Um, I find all that to be, as a total package, quite uh, representative of, of what I've experienced firsthand um, having built many of these products and engaged with many of these users as well. Um, I would say it's pretty, pretty amazing content. Awesome. Well, thanks again for joining us. Thanks for having me, Peter. Thanks again to Sunil James for a great conversation. 
And join us next month when we interview more of cybersecurity's biggest leaders and thinkers. Be sure to subscribe to us at New America's iTunes and SoundCloud at the Cybersecurity Podcast. And I'm on Twitter at Peter W. Singer. And you can follow me at Sarah Sorcher. Sign up for Passcode at csmpasco.com. This podcast was directed by John Williams and Amanda Gaines with production assistance from Simone McPhail. Talk to you in a month. Thank you for listening to this podcast from New America and the Christian Science Monitor. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Music thanks to MK2 for their songs, The Big Score, and Cold Killer. To learn more about Passcode by the Christian Science Monitor, please visit passcode.csmonitor.com. To learn more about New America, please visit newamerica.org.